My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Who made your clothes? Welcome to the last in our mini-series of four shows in celebration of Fashion Revolution Week, which is next week. Woohoo! It is, of course, the global not-for-profit campaign that was established on the anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh to promote transparency in the fashion industry. You're going to meet Fashion Revolution's Head of Policy, Sarah Ditty. Sarah is based in London and has a wealth of insights into the big issues around ethical and sustainable fashion today, from modern slavery to living wages to sustainable fabrics. And it's just a real treat to hang out with her, not least for me, because we are both reformed shopaholics. In fact, Sarah was worse than me. Wait till you hear where she kept her wardrobe overflow. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your nuts schedule to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm a listener. I love it. So I feel really delighted that I get to be a part of it. Sarah, I want just to begin by asking, what can listeners do to get involved with Fashion Revolution Week? This is, I guess, the fourth year that it's happening. Um, The fifth year since the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in Bangladesh, killing over 1,100 garment workers we're making clothes for big brands. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will um, be very aware of this of this tragedy. But um, so Fashion Revolution Week happens over the anniversary of Rana Plaza as a way to remember the victims who were killed and injured in that tragedy and as a way to kind of raise up our voices about the issues that led to the factory collapse and indeed the issues that plague the fashion industry the number one thing you can do to get involved is to get on social media or go to our website and send a message to your favorite brands and ask them a simple question, which is hashtag who made my clothes. And that kind of sends a signal to brands that you care about the people who are making your clothes and that you want to know who they are and you want to know that they're working in safe and fairly paid conditions. 
What I really love about this campaign, and as you know, I've been volunteering and helping out in Australia since the first one, but what I love about it is how fun and positive and inclusive and possible the whole thing is. So it comes out of tragedy, it comes out of something horrendous, but the actual activation and the community that we're building with it is really positive and it's really excellent and we can all get involved. What sort of stuff can we do? And I'm talking about perhaps community activities that people can do. Being positive has been a really important kind of strategic choice for us. I think for a number of reasons. One, everybody who kind of got involved in Fashion Revolution Week and made it what it is from the very beginning, we all love fashion. We love clothes. We love style. You know, a lot of us were designers, not me, unfortunately, but lots of interesting creative minds were involved who really love fashion, but just wanted it to change. And I think we knew that for a lot of consumers who love fashion, like we do, that people don't necessarily, they feel a bit overwhelmed when they're kind of confronted with all these tragic messages and they want to feel empowered to do something and to do something in a, in a positive way. So that's really what we strive to kind of focus on. We sometimes call ourselves pro-fashion protesters. <laughs> I've and never heard that. I love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it really fits the bill. And there's also, you know, there's loads of great campaigning organizations who are really good at targeting specific brands and getting them to change their ways through kind of protesting on the streets or through petitions. So things like the Labor Behind the Label, Clean Clothes Campaign, those kinds of organizations yeah, that are perhaps more... Right. Yeah. And they do amazing work. But So we thought, okay, well, how can we help expand, you know, the conversation and reach a bigger, more mainstream, more fashionista audience and kind of whet their appetite for these issues and hopefully, you know, inspire them to get more and more involved and deeper into these issues, whereby, you know, then in future they might take part in a clean clothes campaign, protest or activity or a labor behind the label stunt you know, something like that. So that's kind of where we're coming from, trying to get more and more people who really love fashion and clothing involved and just everyday people, basically, who've never thought about this stuff before. Um, obviously, the Who Made My Clothes is, is kind of the campaign we started off with, but there's so many things that people can do to be part of positive change in the fashion industry. And, you know, that really does start with your own wardrobe. And simple things like, just men, you know, a button is broken or missing on your jumper or there's a hole in your dress or, you know, something simple is literally instead of throwing that out or sending it to charity is just fixing it. If you don't like the shape anymore, it's transforming it into something else, you know, taking it to a tailor rather than getting rid of it. So learning to love your clothes longer and to care for them is just a really simple step towards being a bit more sustainable, essentially. The other big thing we do during Fashion Revolution Week is local events all over the world. We now have country coordinators in over 100 countries. And part of what they do is empower people and support people and, and put on events themselves um, wherever you live. So you can go on our website on the events tab and find out exactly what local events are happening in your area. And if there aren't any happening in your area, then you can host your own. And there's a whole suite of resources for you to host your own event, know how to do it, some suggestions, ideas, tips, and those can be found in our Get Involved packs. 
I love it. I really love it. It's it's so clever. I was actually talking to Osola recently and asking her all about the thinking behind the original campaign. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about the story of how Fashion Revolution began. Fashion Revolution initially, very initially, was the brainchild of Carrie Summers, who has a fair trade hat brand, a really successful one, you know, for like 25 years called Patch Cootie. And after Rana Plaza, she basically came up with the idea while she was in the bath, <laughs> as you do. That's Eureka you moment. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And she'd been really good friends with Ursula. So she called Ursula after she had this idea. And that's where it all started. And, and I've known both Carrie and Ursula, I think, since around 2009 or 2010. And so about two weeks after... They called up a bunch of people, including myself, and said, hey, we've got this idea to do Fashion Revolution Day, a bit, you know, in the style of International Women's Day next year on the anniversary of Rana Plaza to make sure that this story is more than a news cycle. And that's really where it all started. So pretty much within the first couple of weeks, I got involved and, you know, loads of other folks got involved as well. And uh, I don't know, maybe like 20 or 30 people around a table. And, and by the time Fashion Revolution Day rolled around for the first time in 2014, we had 62 countries involved. And actually, I'd like to share this with listeners because it's so lovely. Mel Tuali, who is the country coordinator for Australia, was the first person to contact Fashion Revolution from outside of the UK. So that's lovely, isn't it? Australian listeners, woo! (laughs) She was, she was. And Mel is just so knowledgeable. She's so passionate. And we're really lucky to have such a strong team there and in Australia. And now it's in how many countries? Over a hundred. Amazing. I can't remember the exact number, but but yeah, over a hundred. And yeah, last year two point five million people got involved in fashion revolution somehow, whether that was, you know, posting on social media or attending an event, uh, downloading a resource, watching a video. So it's really grown in just four years. Um, really just showing that there is an appetite for this, I guess, pro fashion activism and you know people are really genuinely interested in the stories of their clothes and the and the impacts that their clothing is having want to know what they can do to make a positive change yes 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 all those things my favorite things sarah you began as a volunteer but you are now this extremely excellent title head of policy that's a good thing to have in your business card what does it mean what exactly does your role entail well you know titles we're a small team I've always been a super political person. I was a campaigner all throughout university, and I spent a year working at the European Parliament in Brussels in my younger days. And so coming into Fashion Revolution, I was just really, I was just really obsessed and with the idea that laws need to change alongside consumers needing to be more aware and, and take control of, of their own wardrobes. So that's kind of where I came into this was, okay, what can I do with this experience and turn that into some real change for fashion revolution or for the industry indeed. So those are the types of issues that I work on. So this means I I have a lot of meetings with MPs and MEPs. I work a lot with other like-minded NGOs, especially from like the fair trade movement and, you know, folks working on human rights to kind of lobby politicians or to write policy briefs and to do some research and and reports. So a lot of that work goes into the Fashion Transparency Index, but also 
our white paper, which was published in 2015 and will be updated for the end of this year. That's the kind of document that will include specific governmental policy recommendations. And then I try and devise campaigns for citizens to get in contact with their local politicians. So we have a postcard on our website. Um, It's really fun and well-designed where you can print it out and fill it out or use it as an email to email your local politicians and ask them what they're doing to support better working conditions um, and better environmental conditions in fashion supply chains. So what do we need in terms of regulation and policy? And I know it's obviously going to be different in different countries, but Tell us a little bit about what that looks like, because I think that in this conversation, I can certainly be guilty of this, that we tend to focus so much on the consumers having the power to change their behavior or to vote with their wallets. But actually, it's not all about us. We do need to work in partnership, as you said, with governments and with brands and also look at regulations so that, you know, carrot and stick stuff. But talk to me a little bit about what we need. Well, a lot of governments actually have laws in place that are meant to provide certain protections or certain working conditions, such as living wages. And a lot of the time, they're just not enforced adequately. So I think there's a lot of work to be done on how these conditions and, you know, inalienable rights can be better implemented and enforced in governments. But there's also a lack of common standards. There's Of course, there's like the International Labor Organization conventions on working conditions and there's the UN guiding principles and there's a number of instruments sort of at that level. But even in the UK, there's no real minimum standards for supply chains like there is for food. Right. So when you're sort of lobbying MPs or you're meeting with members of the European Parliament and preparing papers, what are your main aims? What are you hoping to achieve? I think, first of all, we we are really excited by the new legislation that's coming in on modern slavery. Yes. So obviously in the UK, we have a Modern Slavery Act that was passed in 2015. And that requires brands over 36 million pounds in annual turnover to be reporting on how they're doing due diligence or risk assessment to ensure that there's no modern slavery practices in their supply chains. Was Britain the first one to take that step? California was probably the first. Was it? Yeah, it was the first legislation of its kind, and that's what the Modern Slavery Act was sort of modeled after, at least the transparency part of the act was modeled after the California Transparency Supply Chains Act. That was before Rana Plaza. Right. And now similar legislation is obviously being proposed there in Australia and some other sort of similar legislation being looked at in Canada. So you're kind of starting to see now a bit more momentum. And it's great. I mean, I've just sort of finished reading about 100 Modern Slavery Act statements um, from brands either based in the UK or selling in the UK. And, you know, it really does increase the disclosure of crucial supply chain information by brands. I mean, it's still pretty, it's a pretty minimum, but it's a huge step forward. So I think we would really like to see similar legislation in in other countries. You mentioned the Fashion Transparency Index 2017, which I know that you worked very hard on. I wonder if you'd like to explain that term, transparency, in the fashion context 
to someone who might think it means Chanel's see-through PVC boots. <laughs> sure. Always good to bring some levity to the serious questions. But what does it mean? Like, okay, is it publishing factory lists? It's more than that, isn't it? Transparency means public disclosure of information, of data that's credible, comprehensive, and comparable. And that does include information about suppliers and supply chains. But yeah, you're right. It includes a whole raft of other things as well. So some of the elements that we look at in the Fashion Transparency Index deals with, okay, what what are the policies that big brands and retailers have in place? Are they disclosing what those policies are as a first start? Um, What are their processes and procedures in place for enacting those policies and making sure that those policies are more than just words on a piece of paper. What's their governance look like? You know, how are they deciding or making decisions on social and environmental impacts? Who's in charge and how does it get managed at the company level? And then just things like, do they have an email address of someone from their sustainability team that people can get in touch with, with questions? You'd be surprised how many brands are virtually impossible to get a hold of. And then the other areas we're looking at is traceability. So yes, are brands and retailers publishing information about their actual suppliers? So factory list is definitely part of that. And then we also look at their kind of impacts and performance. So are brands sharing with their customers information, not just about their policies, but how they're performing against those policies and across their supply chain. Now, we will share a link to this document, the 2017 report, which you can download for free from the Fashion Revolution site. And it is a pretty big report, but it's really worth a read. I found some of the findings very interesting and surprising. I thought we'd have done better, Sarah, than we have. So the average brand scores about 20% of the available points. That's not very good, is it? (laughs) Yeah, I think that just shows that there's a long way to go towards publishing or disclosing relevant information about supply chains, especially for the big brands and retailers. And it's 100 brands you look at, is that right? It was 100 brands last year, and this year it'll be 150 brands. Now, and I think it's important to note that we look at brands rather than parent companies. Okay. Because it's brands who consumers will recognize. And how do you pick them? Are they the, just the biggest? Yeah, uh, it's kind of difficult to put together the list of brands each year just because some brands are absolutely massive, but they're privately owned, so they don't always disclose their financial information. But we try to choose the biggest brands we can, and we also try to make sure that we have a good selection of of brands from all over the world and across market segments. So, you know, sportswear, denim, luxury, high street, your kind of grocery or supermarket value sorts of retailers, um, you know, accessories. Let's talk about something positive, like what were you impressed by? Who's doing well? What can we celebrate about some of this information that is now coming to the fore? I'm always trying to look for a positive in. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, here in Australia, for instance, I know it's not part of your report, but 
we've just had the news that Gorman, which is a much loved brand in Australia that lots of people really admire, and they've done a lot of collaborations with artists and they make really cool clothes. They were hauled over the coals a little bit by the Baptist World Aid Report, but then they've recently just stepped up and released a list of their suppliers, so everyone's excited. And that definitely came from pressure, you know, pressure from media stories coming down on them like a ton of bricks when they didn't disclose. So obviously when the media gets involved and these become headline stories, it does push brands into acting, doesn't it? Definitely. And I think also once enough brands do something, then brands who kind of drag their feet will eventually come along. So that's quite helpful. I mean, I think that's going to be the biggest change that we will see this year is a lot more brands are publishing their factory lists. So at least the places where, they're, where they've got direct relationships with factories where their clothes are cut and sewn. And we've, I just literally just counted the other day and there's over 150 brands in over 60 companies who are now publishing a factory list at that sort of first level, which is great. It's really exciting. And, you know, I think that's in part to our campaigns of people asking these brands who make my clothes, but also, you know, obviously the behind the barcode report has been influential that in that and then the transparency pledge which is a campaign that's been run by clean clothes campaign human rights watch and several other organizations has been incredibly instrumental in pushing brands to disclose these supplier lists okay i just want to ask you about ordinary folk so if you're simply a fashion fan and you're in the shopping center and you're all excited about buying whatever it is that you've fallen in love with how can the average shopper find out or know whether things have been made under sweatshop conditions you know, okay, perhaps we could look up a list of factories, but what does that mean to us? What if you don't know what that means or where those factories are? Or it's just a name on a, on a spreadsheet, isn't it? So how, how can the shopper find out more about how their clothes are made? I mean, if you're shopping on the high street or in a shopping mall, to be honest, I think it's still really, really tough. Yeah. I don't think you're likely to be able to discern that information when you're out shopping. I mean, people always ask me if price point is very key to this, like the cheaper, the worst. And it just isn't the case, is it? It's just so nuanced and so complicated that it's not necessarily the case that the cheap thing is the worst thing. You're exactly right. It is really tough. If $5 shirt could be made in the same place as a $50 shirt, and the materials might be a lot nicer, but it's still getting made by the same person who's getting paid the same small amount of money and working in the same conditions. So that's not always indicative of what the working conditions are. And, and it does make it really tricky for consumers you know, to make informed purchasing decisions. And I just don't think that we're there yet, Yeah, especially if you're shopping on the high street. I mean, I think one of the pieces of advice I always give is that because we don't know and because we can't be sure and I don't have an answer for you as to whether that particular pair of pants in that little cheap shop is good or not. But I do think we can be sure when we're shopping with local brands that we've done some research into or supporting sustainable designers that we've heard about on Instagram, for instance, or through we have a great store here called Well Made Clothes, for example. It is possible to find the good ones. I think it's just harder to root out the bad. Absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, my recommendation, you know, would always be, do you really need the item? First of all, if you do, second of all, can you buy it either secondhand or can you buy it from a smaller independent designer 
you know, maybe one that you, who talks about, you know, their sustainable approach. Yeah, for sure. That's always the first go-to if, you know, invest a little bit more money um, in something nicer if you can. You know, if you feel like you have to shop on the high street, you feel like you don't have any other option, you see something that you really love and you know you're going to wear it forever. You know, I'm not the type of person who's going to tell you not to buy that thing, but I, I would recommend choosing that thing as like the last resort. And then if you are going to buy that, then at least the minimum thing you can do is, you know, tweet or email or Instagram that brand and ask them where that product has been made and who has made it and how it's been made and what are the impacts. And, you know, chances are they might not reply or they might reply with some quite woolly information, (laughs) but just nothing. Like the other day I started tweeting at Tetra Pak about the plastic straws that they produce and they did reply with a ridiculous, I thought, response, which was, actually, it's up to consumers to be educated around littering in order for the straws not to end up in the ocean. They didn't reckon on getting me because I'm still tweeting at them and now they're in this horrendous chain where I'm like, no, stop making the plastic straws and make biodegradable ones. It's not good enough. But I think it's interesting because brands do have to answer, actually. I mean, they could ignore you, but there's someone probably on the end of that Twitter sphere his job it is, is to respond and make them look good and be good at marketing. And so it's in their interest to answer. And if you nag at them, they have to think about it. You know, someone somewhere is having a meeting about that tweet. Definitely. That's, I think that's a really good point to highlight. Um, one of the big, big brands that I met with last summer, they told me that if they get 100 emails or, uh, you know, 300 tweets from people who they know are likely their customers. Yeah that they will take that into a high level meeting within the company and at least discuss, you know, how they're going to respond or what they should do about that request that they keep getting. Isn't that lovely news? I find that absolutely lovely news. Absolutely. You know, they are listening they might not be responding straight away, but even the big brands are listening and they know they have to do something to make a change when their customers contact them. So if if nothing else, that's the least we can do to be having a positive effect. Sarah Ditty, who made your clothes? (laughs) I'm just throwing that at you. Good question. Like right now, what are you wearing? Right now. I'm like the red carpet. Who are you wearing, Sarah? Well, I'm in my home right now, so I'm pretty much wearing my pajamas. I look beautiful. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Just kidding. No, um, I'm actually, I'm wearing some leggings that my mom made me. My mom's actually a costume designer. Oh, wow. I I always get her to make me leggings because she makes the best ones. And there's this really great fabric warehouse in the city next to my hometown that does pretty much entirely dead stock materials. So this is some crazy uh, leopard print dead stock material Love. Uh, that my mom made at home. And then my sweatshirt is from Continental Clothing. Oh, I've never even heard of that. What is it? Oh, I love Continental. Okay, so I don't actually know the exact person who made my sweatshirt, but I think if I contacted Continental Clothing, they could probably tell me what factory. I think Continental Clothing was actually the first carbon neutral certified apparel brand. You've taught me a label I've never heard. Thank you. Now, Sarah, you mentioned that your mum made your leggings. I cannot possibly dodge this brilliant opportunity to say to you, let's talk about dancing. Did she make Ah. your leotards when you were a whippersnapper? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) I've been stalking you on Instagram. Therefore, I know that you were a dancer. 
I was, yeah. I trained as a professional dancer for almost 20 years of my life. And I've kind of danced professionally on and off throughout my teens and 20s. What kind of dancing? So I trained in ballet, but I also did a lot of did modern... Did you do the jazz ballet? Because I did that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, in yes. the best leotards. Come on. Yes. I was always really theatrical, so I, I was always way more up for basically anything that was a little bit camp. That was right up my alley. Love. <laughs> um, did you cop a look at Rita Moreno at the Oscars wearing the exact same dress that she had worn when she won an Oscar for West Side Story in 1962? And now she's like 86. Did you see her? Yes. Oh, my God. How fabulous so good. is she? And, like, she can still fit in that dress. That's amazing. And she had it made strapless. <laughs> but anyway, I say that because loved clothes last. Yes. Yeah, that's our other big campaign that we launched last year. Hashtag love clothes last. Yeah, we basically want to try to encourage people to take better care of their clothes. I think one thing people don't realize is that if you look at the life cycle of a garment, there's lots of studies out there you can look at. There's a great one by Levi's, actually, um, and by RAP, which is this great environmental organization here in the UK. But that about a third, I think it's a third of the emissions right. from your garment comes from how you use it. Oh, right. Yes. A lot of the, well, the environmental footprint of your garment comes from how consumers care for it. And so that's really an issue that we're trying to tackle through Love Clothes Last is kind of inspiring people to think about their clothes in a less disposable way and, and learn some exciting ways to take care of their clothes and make use of their clothes for longer. So where did this all come from in you, Sarah? So I detect you're American. <laughs> do you know I thought you were British because you just seem like you have British style when I see pictures of you and I was like what do you oh. mean you're American you don't look American whatever that means you've obviously got London style but tell us about your childhood where does this interest in clothes come from do you know was it there when you were a little kid wanting to be a dancer or was it something that you came to later I've always been obsessed with clothes since I can remember I think that comes from my mom my mom used to shop at this shop called Disco Baby. Oh, stop. Love. Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. were her Disco Baby. Were you her jazz ballet baby? <laughs> I was her jazz baby. Yeah, no, I was her. I think I'm still her Disco Baby, to be fair. But yeah, no, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was always obsessed with clothing. Anyone who knows me from childhood will know that is the case. I think I was voted best dressed in high school. Um, very cheesy. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, I've always been obsessed with clothes. Um, and I think that's actually how I came to sustainability because when I was in my very early 20s, I worked as a makeup artist and a, and a fashion stylist. And I was obsessed with, yeah, I was just obsessed with fashion and with, and with clothing. And I got to a point where I didn't have any dishes in my kitchen. I kept clothes in there instead. Not true. True. Yeah, true. Yeah. I had like, I think I counted and I had like over 500 dresses and like oh 300 tops and like 200 pairs of shoes. And it was like bad. It was very wow, bad. Wow. Okay. You and I have so much in common. We're reformed shopaholics. I mean, I yeah. tell that story in my book about my wardrobe breaking and people think that it's awful, but it did happen. <laughs> I think you're worse. You seriously, you didn't have anything in your kitchen that wasn't clothes. <laughs> 
It was really gross. I mean, you know, basically like a few friends and family had to have not an intervention, but they really were like, this is not okay. You don't even have any dishes. You just have clothes in here. So I came to sustainability because I was really interested in social justice issues. And then, and I just haven't made the connection between what I was doing in my personal life and some of these political yeah, I guess these passion are for social justice. And one day it just kind of dawned on me. And uh, I feel like the same. I was always very, very mindful of the environment and very, very concerned about trees, for instance, and waterways. But it took me a long time to make that connection with my own consumption and fashion and the environment. It just, it might seem clear, but I actually just hadn't joined those dots. So what made you join them? What were you studying? Basically, I left being a makeup artist to move to London 10 years ago to do a master's degree in international development and globalization. And I think it was there we started learning a little bit about supply chains um, in the context of international development that that's when I started to put two and two together. It's quite a windy path from makeup artist to social justice and doing a master's degree. Yeah, it's a pretty <laughs> unusual journey. I, I mean, I say. get it. I get why you're where you are now, because I think all those tenets can easily come together. But it isn't an obvious path. What was it about London that drew you there? Well, a couple of things. First, I, I'd never been to London before I moved here. I didn't know a single person. Serendity, you're quite eccentric. You're actually quite <laughs> an eccentric person. You're like got this, <laughs> this kitchen full of clothes. And then you thought, I just go to London, never been. I think I moved there. <laughs> I think that that pretty much sums me up. Yeah, so I I basically well I'm obviously American and American tuition for doing a master's degree is absurdly expensive. Ah, uh, yes. And I also wanted to study international development, and I was kind of looking up some writers and some academics who I was particularly interested by or inspired in, and they were all based in in the UK. So I thought, oh, I'll just go there. And who were some of those people? So my very favorite academic is called Hajun Chang. Do you know him? No. He's at the University of Cambridge. He's brilliant. He has written some books that have just absolutely shaped who I am. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, yeah. He's an economist from the University of Cambridge, and he is famous for a couple of books. My favorite is called Kicking Away the Ladder. Great title. Yeah, and he, he basically talks about like how countries develop. And he does it in a way that's really funny and accessible, even though you know obviously it's all rooted in economics. What did he study? International development and globalization. So and we, did, we did actually have to take economics as part of that course. Yeah, so and where were you? It's called SOAS at the University of London, and it's got one of the best international development programs in in the world. And I think I was particularly influenced by, I was like assigned a thesis advisor. I didn't really know her very well, but I ended up being really inspired by her. Her name is Alessandra Mesidri, and she's... So she's the one who's involved in the Indian garment industry, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's an expert in the Indian garment industry particularly in informal economies, but she, she basically researches, you know, sweatshops and all the different ways that kind of sweatshop conditions are reproduced. Aha, that's your destiny. Mm. So was there a moment when you kind of started to work with her and then think, 
I mean, did you go to India? I know you've got a lot of links with India because I saw that you've written for Vogue India. And I know you've been to yeah. Indian Fashion Week. Yeah, I have. It's kind of, It kind of just has been a little bit of a happy accident. But I first went to India with Shivam, who is the founder of a New York-based luxury fashion brand called Baino. Which well, is it's in- a crack up because I was with him last week. Yeah, oh, I love Shivam. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> because he was involved. Is was he the one who began Fashion Revolution in in the states? He was an, um I think he was our second or third country coordinator. But yeah, but he was he's been instrumental in helping Fashion Revolution grow in the U.S. And yeah, so I when he launched Baino, he launched in Mumbai, and so I went out there for the launch um, along with Andrew Morgan and Vandana Tiwari and we talked to folks and it was really inspiring and and I just got along really well there I met I made a lot of friends and I just had a brilliant time and I've just kind of had a little bit of a crush on India ever since yes Um, I think it's a really interesting place particularly at the moment because it's an emerging well it's an emerging economy but there's this you know this growing consuming class Obviously, there's a lot of luxury fashion lovers in in India as well, and but they just have this—they have the whole supply chain, you know, from growing cotton through to the like the most amazing history of textile craftsmanship, and then you know, and then garment manufacturing, and then um, this emerging consumer class and all these luxury consumers. So I think I just think it's a really dynamic and interesting place to be having conversations about sustainability. So that's kind of what's drawn me there. Fascinating. After that, though, after your master's, where did you go from there? Because I know you had a blog called Laundrette. That's a beautiful name. Mm. I've always like that word. It's a good word. But your tagline was cleaning up dirty fashion. It's good. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I started Laundrette while at the tail end of my master's studies. And that was really that when we were talking about that moment where you put your two and two together. That's why I started my blog. I thought, okay, I need to explore the fact that I'm a shopaholic Mm -hmm. and that now I'm studying international development and I know now that there's all these supply chain issues going on. Um, I want to explore this a bit more for my own self. And so that's when I started Laundrette and and looking at brands and organizations who are trying to do things in a more sustainable and ethical way. Um, so that was back in 2000, end of 2009, and I ran Laundrette for a couple of years, and I built up quite a, a nice little following um, at the time. Blogs were still kind of a new thing. For sure, and at that time, I mean, that would be a great in because you would have been one of few ethical fashion blogs at that time. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. would have given you really interesting ins, and I know that that's how you first came across Aesthetica. Are they still doing it? No, no, sadly, I didn't think they no. were. But I went. I have been to it, which was this excellent hub that was run at London Fashion Week. When I went, I met Katie Jones, who is the incredible knitwear designer, and she was there, which was great. And in fact, Faustine Steinmetz, who's one of my most favourite designers at the moment, she was just showing her first collection there when I went there. So it was like this amazing hub that would kind of bring together these new voices in sustainable fashion in a really cool way. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was it was Ursula was the brainchild of Aesthetica along with her partner Filippo Ricci. And Carrie always exhibited at Aesthetica with her hat brand Patch Cootie. And yeah, that's kind of how I got to know them. I wanna scoot forwards and just talk a little bit about what you did then before Fashion Revolution because you briefly worked at Warn Again, which is a very interesting 
organization. These guys are pioneers in textiles recycling and they did some of the earliest work in this field. And I think some of it is a grant from h and I'm not sure if that's right. But can you just tell us a little bit about that and what you did there? Yeah, absolutely. So I was the sort of just all around assistant to the founders of, of Warn Again. So Cindy Rhodes is a, one of the brilliant masterminds behind Warn Again. And yeah, during my time there, we were working on a couple of, they were still very much involved in upcycling. So doing some upcycling pilot projects with some big corporates. Um, so essentially working with them to set up systems to collect used uniforms from their employees. So kind of, I guess in a way, like early days of take back schemes. Yep. It's kind of, it's kind of, I think, laid some of the groundwork for those take back schemes to to happen. So we were working um, with a couple of big corporates to collect their uniforms and then to have them remanufactured into other products and either sell them to the public or sell them back to the companies to use again. So that was something that I worked on. And then while I was there, it was the very beginning days of, of thinking about, okay, well, we need something that's going to you know, fundamentally transform the industry and the way that materials are used. And essentially, we just, Cindy was really obsessed with the idea of just designing waste out completely from fashion supply chains. It's the most modern idea. I mean, if you think that she was thinking like that, I don't know, nearly 10 years ago, that's now how we're all trying to think. But then she was very, very forward thinking. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. She's one of the most forward thinking people I've ever met, for sure. I mean, at, you know, I think at the time people really thought, oh, this is a completely absurd hairline <laughs> idea. But, you know, but and she's incredible. She, and she's also she's super clever and super persistent. And and she just kept carrying on. And, you know, now Worn Again is hopefully really going to revolutionize the way that basically materials in the, in the fashion industry and, and making them actually recyclable at scale. I love those stories. They shared an office with the Ethical Fashion Forum, which Christopher Rayburn mentioned on this podcast. What do they do? And what did you do there, Sarah? Yeah, so I worked for the Ethical Fashion Forum for four and a half years. Um, and I was their editor. So I, I ran their website, essentially. At the time, they had a kind of online magazine called Source Intelligence. So that was what I was uh, responsible for. And so did a lot of research on sourcing, supply chains, you know, environmental impact, marketing, business models, all sorts of things, putting together advice for kind of s predominantly for small and medium-sized brands who wanted to work in a more sustainable way or as a sustainable brand wanted to build a more successful, sustainable business. Sarah, I want to finish up. Like, I feel like there's so much exciting stuff happening. I wonder if we might finish up by you just sharing your perspective on how much change you've seen, because you've done so many amazing things over your career so far in this space. But we're seeing so much change, aren't we? When you started, this wasn't even a thing. Like, You were like a, a pioneer of something secret. And now it's like a really buzzy, interesting space that everyone wants a piece of. I love it. <laughs> Talk to me about the change you've seen and where you think we're headed. Yeah, it's crazy actually to think about it in that way. So thanks for reminding me. Sometimes you don't get the opportunity to sit back and take stock of what it is that you've actually achieved. But I think things have particularly changed or gained momentum in the definitely in the past five years since Rana Plaza really was a watershed moment. 
And even though maybe things haven't changed, you know, in such a transformative way as we maybe hope it has, I think now a lot of companies are questioning what they need to do to move towards a more ethical approach and a more sustainable approach and to be more transparent. And those conversations are happening with a lot more rigor and a lot, you know, just a lot more frequently. And and the media is covering Yes, supply chain issues in a much greater abundance than they ever were before. I mean, even look at yourself, you know, the new sustainability editor at large of Vogue Australia. That's <laughs> Thank like, you. you're the pioneer. That's amazing. I mean, I just, it blows my mind that that's oh, thanks, even possible. Mate. So it is interesting. No, thank you. That's lovely and kind. But it is interesting, isn't it, that we've come to a place where this is a thing. Yeah, it's a it's a thing, and every big brand is now having to to talk about these issues and to at least be seen to be doing something about it, even if they aren't. And this, you know, the same with governments. I mean, mm-hmm. I know the European Union that really wants to be seen to be you know tackling these issues and moving forward on these issues. So I think it's it, you know it's great that these supply chain issues in the fashion industry are finally you know kind of being put on a a much wider global agenda you know what sarah ditty yes we are actually doing all right in changing the world the ethical fashion community aren't we i reckon it's good (laughs) i think so and there's you know the other great thing is there's more and more brands every day more and more designers who are taking a sustainable approach and it's so inspiring and their clothes are so beautiful there's so much out there now that there wasn't 10 years ago Okay, all I want to do is just bring it back to this. I'm thinking of ways. I keep thinking, how can I do it? How can I do it? It's this. <laughs> now we can celebrate because we've all done so well. What will you dance to around your kitchen that now presumably does not house your wardrobe? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, a favorite song? I would have to go with Never Too Much by Luther Vandross. Love. Well, you are never too much. I would like more of you. Thank you so very much <laughs> for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my